1: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Professor Mark Dollinger, who holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University. He is the author of the new book, Black Power, Jewish Politics, Reinventing the Alliance in the 1960s, published by Brandeis University Press in 2018. Mark, thanks very much for um, being on the program with us. Uh, traditional first question, uh, how did you come to write this book?
0: Yeah, so when I wrote my uh, first book, which was on American Jewish liberalism from the 1930s to the 1970s, I was drawn into the last two chapters uh, on the 1960s, and I thought it would be really fascinating to dive deep into that single decade Uh, to see what kind of insights I could explore. So the Black Power Jewish Politics book is really sort of an extension of that first book.
1: You do start by looking at um, the 1950s and uh, looking at the um, relationship between Jews and Black nationalism, and you um, offer something of a corrective to the established historiography on this era. Uh, So maybe you could tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so actually, for that, I, I think it's best to work backwards. In that, I started the book, you know, in the 1960s. Really, what I thought was the difference from the late 60s uh, and the early 1960s, and then as I started reading the sources about, you know, sort of the white Jewish community's involvement in the African American struggle for racial equality, the sources kept pulling me earlier and earlier, and then I ended up um, reading um, the 1950s which I didn't initially anticipate. And the more I read, the more of a corrective. Um, I actually researched the book from um, the most recent to the earliest, and then I reversed course and wrote the book, you know, chapter one on from the 1950s. So the traditional historiographic interpretation of the 1950s sort of, well, I jokingly call it the Kumbaya thesis, um, and is that is Blacks and Jews coming from a common history of discrimination and persecution, experiencing sociological marginality um, as sort of a part of their ethnic and, and racial and religious identities, you know, naturally came together because of these similarities. And then those similarities, you know, brought them you know, famously marching together with the the, the the famous image of Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel and Selma, uh, and and all was good. And then I started reading on the 1950s, and I discovered that the um, organized Jewish leaders of national organizations, predominantly white older men, were actually keenly aware of the limits of white Jewish liberalism and how deep institutional racism and what we now call white supremacy were in American society. And they were Calling um, out and predicting racial conflict between blacks and white Jews uh, a full decade before it entered, you know, common knowledge or understanding. So first, I was fascinated that they that they said it. Second, I was really interested that they were saying it in public places. In other words, I went to the archives, and and these these things were not sort of hidden deep in internal confidential memos. Um, and then, and then I was uh, interested in historiography, which is, you know, why haven't uh, these these um, documents been been discussed and engaged earlier? And then that brought me ultimately to historical memory, which is that this book is is a challenge to the way we tend to understand our past, uh, at least speaking now as a Jew. And uh, so, chapter one. I mean to shake up historical memory and historiography, as well as history, uh, and and show that the eventual breakup of the Black-Jewish alliance with the rise of Black power was no accident at all. It was no surprise. It was actually predicted. And there was a counter narrative to what we normally understand that was at play.
1: Yeah, great. You didn't um, turn to look at uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and its vision of remedying racial injustice. Um, tell us a bit about how Jews responded uh, to this program.
0: Yeah, so the Great Society is a is a great focal point to understand um, Jews and social justice. Um, I think for many white Jewish liberals prior to the Great Society, racism was understood in sort of the language of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and and that is you know Jim Crow segregation it was quite strident, and and Jewish liberals clearly rejected that definition of racism. What happened by the mid 1960s, um, largely from the African American um, led civil rights movement, and also from a lot of new sociology that came out in the period, was an understanding that racism was institutional. It was woven into the very fabric of American society, and for that reason. Creating legal legislative victories, which, um, which, which happened with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as good as those were, as hard fought a, they were in terms of victories for Dr. King uh, and his cohort, uh, they actually didn't go far enough. Um, in what became known as affirmative action programs, uh, the, the notion was that government, especially in the federal government at the core, needed to take affirmative actions in order to address systemic racial inequality. So the big question for, for Jewish liberals you know, is, uh, so where are they going to land? Um, and I found a fascinating dialectic. In terms of affirmative action in theory, Almost every national Jewish organization supported it. They understood racism was more than than the KKK and white Southern bigots. They understood um, what sociologists and, and what Lyndon Johnson called the culture of poverty, playing a lot on the research of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, so uh, we, we find the sources supporting affirmative action. Then when quotas come in, uh, Jewish organizations, almost to each one, do a 180-degree flip, and they oppose quotas. Uh, and they oppose quotas because they consider quotas anti-Semitic, because in the 1920s especially, there were anti-Semitic quotas that prevented Jews from going to universities and graduate schools and jobs and and to buy homes in the suburbs and and vacations. And there was lots of places for it. Um, What I found fascinating, though, by studying the Great Society and Jewish reaction to quotas was the fact that quotas in the 1920s were used so that white Americans could stay in power and communities of color would be continued to be powerless and on the margins. Lyndon Johnson in the 60s flipped it. He created quotas to bring in marginalized communities to power while, you know, white Urban ethnic[s] especially complained that they were pushed to the outside. So, if some, if one were an, um, a, a completely, you know, a neutral African American, um, they would hate the quotas in the twenties and love them in the sixties. If you were a white Protestant, you loved them in the twenties and hated them in the sixties. I argue that Jews were the only American group that hated them both times. And the explanation for that is that something happened to Jews between the 20s and the 60s. They went from being a non-white group in the earlier version of quotas, where they were pushed out, to being a white and powerful group in the mid-60s under the uh, Great Society. And, and now they were ineligible um, for for the, the quota system. Um so 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 to me, one, this shows the Jewish ascension into whiteness and power and privilege and the dynamics that are there. And it also shows the error in historical memory of American Jews using the 1920s argument to apply to the 1960s when in fact it didn't work.
1: So your next chapter looks at the organized Jewish community's response to the emerging black power movement. Um so tell us tell us a bit about this.
0: Yeah, this is a classic historiographic question. The historical memory, journalistic articles, and a whole lot of academic books uh, had the following theory for the rise of Black power in the 1960s. White liberal Jews helped African Americans in the civil rights movement. African Americans did not thank the Jews. Instead, they responded with Black anti-Semitism. And then with the rise of Black militancy, Black nationalism, and the Black power movement, um, They purged uh, Jews from their organizations. Um, Therefore, the conclusion was that the rise of Black power was a a terrible thing, and African Americans are um, unthankful to all the good work that the white Jews had done on their behalf. Uh, And then when I got into the archives, I began to notice that that actually wasn't the story, um, wasn't even the story told in the mid-60s or even in the late 1950s. Some of the sources went back that early. Uh, and there I find national Jewish leaders uh, predicting that there will be a spike in Black anti-Semitism arguing that um, there is no way for white liberals to remain in leadership positions in black civil rights organizations, that in order to achieve racial equality, African-Americans need to control their own destiny and their own strategy, uh, and that there will be a period of friction. Uh, And because Jews had achieved whiteness and privilege, um, uh, sociologically, African-Americans were still suffering from institutional racism. Even the rise of black anti-Semitism did not materially affect um, American Jews. Uh, And uh, rather than the the theory that black power uh, ended it all and made it worse, what they were actually arguing is uh, black power is coming. Jews are going to be purged. Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. You
1: look at. uh, in the next chapter, uh, particularly how American Jews turned inward and initiated a cultural revival that in many ways was modelled on black nationalism. Uh, so tell us about this.
0: Yeah, so uh, so this is where the reverse story of the book comes into play. The first title of the book was Churning Inward, and this was actually the question I was interested in. Um, how and why did American Jews become more Jewish in a variety of different ways in the late 1960s through the 1970s. So um, what I discovered uh, as I was reading back was that the Black Power movement w- was all over the primary sources. Uh, in fact, um, I, I looked at Soviet Jewry was really the first the first place. And uh, Um, I was was actually doing research on my first book, and I noticed that there was a, a file in what was then called a card catalog on the Freedom Rides 1971 which was an inaccurate date because the freedom rides were a decade earlier but I you know I called up the file anyway it turned out it was a freedom ride in 1971 but it was a freedom ride for soviet jews not not the classic freedom ride of the civil rights struggle and the more i read about the soviet jewry movement the more i read strategies of the black nationalist movement or even larger of the 1960s of bringing democracy into the streets where jews in the early post-war years and through the early 1960s were quite reluctant to be public about their Jewishness, um, once uh, the Black Power movement emerged and demonstrated to Jews, and I'll also say to lots of other ethnic, racial, and gender groups, I just wrote about the Jews, that it was good and fashionable and prideful to be in the public square advocating for your behalf, Jewish leaders began writing, and in the rabbis in their sermons said, we should f- copy Black Power. And we should never you know be embarrassed about being jewish, and if blacks are taking to the streets to protest, Jews should take this to the streets as well now since jews you know uh, were purged at least from leadership positions in civil rights organizations um they weren't going to continue there and um Jews had achieved uh whiteness and privilege so that they really didn't need a civil rights movement for Jews in this country uh so they Turned to the Soviet Union and they sort of launched a Jewish version of the civil rights movement, which they they called the Soviet Jewry movement. And um, a quarter of the Soviet Jewry activists were trained in the civil rights movement. And Jacob Birnbaum, who is the head of the student uh, struggle for Soviet Jewry, said um, that if injustice cannot be condoned in in, in Selma in the Deep South, neither should it in Kiev, USSR. So he was drawing um, the, the, the direct parallel. And what I noticed in the research was a a whole lot of the different sort of Judeo-centered ethnic or religious revivalist movements were all um, either directly or or even indirectly borrowing a page from the Black Power Strategy Handbook. And what that meant was rather than sort of breaking up the Black Jewish Alliance and being bad for the Jews – the rise of Black Power rebuilt American Jewish life and gave Jews the roadmap that they would need to be stronger and more publicly identified.
1: Getting towards the end, the, the your last chapter is uh, looks at Black Power and the American Zionist movement. So tell us a bit about what the relationship was, um, and and the influence um, of the Black Power movement on the American Zionist movement.
0: Yeah, this was my favorite chapter, and it's a chapter where this parallel between Black Power uh, and American Jews comes um, into sharpest focus, and sort of we'll start with a with a, a historical non question, as it were, uh, and that is that. For most of American Jewish history, American Jews have not been ardent Zionists, at least for defining Zionism as Aliyah, as moving to Israel. Um, Certainly after World War II, there was a great deal of philanthropic Zionism. Um, I've always been curious, though— to compare the reaction of American Jews in 1948, when Israel was created, to the 1967 Six-Day War. Uh, clearly, in 1948, American Jews were were happy and, and relieved and celebrating, but they weren't really taking to the streets and dancing, you know, as, as they were in, in, in the newborn state of Israel. But after 1967, there was a massive enthusiasm and rebirth of American Zionism. In New York City, they raised uh, millions of dollars in just uh, one hour at a luncheon. Uh, 7,500 Jewish college students got on planes um, to work uh, in Israel to, to free the Israelis, you know, to, to serve in the military. The United Jewish Appeal doubled its fundraising. Um, than from the year before. And some like 97, 98% of American Jews expressed strong sympathy for the state of Israel in a public opinion poll. Needless to say, we're not going to get statistics like that, at least in the United States of today. So I was really interested as a student of the history to figure out what was going on in 67, um, and by inference, sort of why 67 was even more important in American Jewish life than 1948. Um, and as it turns out, I argue that the Six Day War, the 1967 war, could not have happened at a better time, which is that the rise of Black power, and especially 64, 65, you know sort of turned uh, Jewish progressives away from the civil rights movement, and you know in a famous uh, you know exchange with Malcolm X who said you know that that Jewish folks should go back to their communities and be active there now now Malcolm X wanted them to work on fighting racism within their own communities, but I think a lot of jews took took that to mean that they should you know fight on behalf of their own communities so um, when israel achieves a dramatic military victory in less than a week, it brings together um, their renewed pride in being Jewish, their willingness and ability to be public about it, the fact that the political allegiances of the earlier um, era in the Civil Rights Movement was now over, and they rallied and responded in the most powerful way. So the source material here is the most dramatic in that we have rabbis and Jewish community leaders who are explicitly stating that they are attaching their renewed love of Zionism with a version of Black nationalism as espoused by the Black Power Movement. And while my book is not about the African-American community, it's really responding to a historiography of of, of American Jewish history, it, it, it flipped in in that african americans began promoting black nationalism and black power uh, on zionism uh so you know we have stokely carmichael who is getting in front of african american audiences sort of louting the jews for their zionism and for recreating their state of israel and and that you know and that american blacks should do the same and and we have college professors and and rabbis and jewish leaders uh, on the jewish side who are who are arguing that um that black nationalism is nothing more than Jewish nationalism in a different time and place. And they start drawing parallels between the writings of of what were then called black militants with the writing of, we could call them Jewish militants and the early founders of the Zionist movement, which sort of led to the overarching thesis of the book, which is while most people assume that the black Jewish alliance split and broke and ended forever in the mid 1960s, The rise of American Zionism and these other movements show that blacks and Jews were actually coming together, that a new consensus emerged between the two communities. Now, to be clear, they were not working side by side and arm in arm as Heschel and King were. But if we see them as operating in a parallel fashion, they were each doing their own thing based upon models of the other.
1: It's a fascinating uh, book um, and really um, some provocative and interesting uh, arguments. I wonder if you, um, just before we wrap up, uh, if you wanted to add anything regarding the sort of contemporary relevance um, of your study in terms of, um, yeah, particularly black Jewish politics uh, in, in America today.
0: Yeah, this is an excellent question. And for this, I have to get right to uh, the epilogue. The epilogue was inspired um, by Ilana Kaufman, uh, who is now the head uh, of the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. Um, She's an African-American Jewish woman. And we were enjoying lunch one day in the final stages of the book. And she offered me a very powerful and profound challenge. She said, you just wrote an entire book on blacks and Jews. And nowhere did you mention? black Jews. Uh, and uh, she began to talk about the invisibility of African-American Jews in the white American Jewish community um, and the consequence that that has in a variety of ways, not the least of which is the dehumanizing of, of, of black Jews themselves. Uh, and, uh, and as I thought about it more and more, it, it, is, it is fundamentally a human question and a communal question. And it also really challenged and undermined a lot of my thesis. Uh, when one talks about Black-Jewish relations, when one even uses the language of relations between Blacks and Jews, one is assuming that Jews are white and that there are not Black Jews. So as Ilan and I went back and forth, I was thinking, you know, what what happens to each of these chapters if if they were written through the lens of race and through the lens of what it is to be a Black Jew? And how would we re understand or rewrite our understanding of our own past. Uh, historiography is the is the story of how different generations of academic historians retell the same story, or at least the, the same the same moment in history. So what I wanted to do was challenge myself and and really put what I thought was an was an excellent critique of my thesis in as the epilogue, as an opportunity and a challenge, um, that the next generation of book on the Black Jewish Alliance uh, needs to actually um, get rid of assumptions I made about Jewish people being white. And um, I think, you know, what Ilana at least impressed upon me, um, I was interested in, in, in exploring how Jewishness was really Americanness, that what American Jews thought was a Jewish thing, I said, no, that was a 1960s thing. You know, that was an American political thing. It was a Black Power thing. And and from Ilana, I learned, well, how much uh, of Jewishness is really whiteness and and how much of of what we believe to be Jewish expression is actually expression of white privilege, and I think that that is a breathtaking question. I think the implications are profound, uh, certainly in the contemporary world, uh, and um, and I'm hopeful that 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 will be the next book um, that that a scholar who is much better versed in these questions than I will will take.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Those are um, yeah really uh, fascinating and, and important questions. Um, so I, I guess you've laid down that challenge for future historians, uh, to take up, uh, but the traditional last question on new books and Jewish studies is, is about your own work. Um, so, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what your work, what you're working on next?
0: Yeah, thank you. So I've actually decided that I want to sort of turn away from the strictly academic and historiographic book um, and instead um, l- look at a question that has, has fascinated me professionally and personally in my career. And that's campus antisemitism. Um, I began my career at a right wing well, at a campus with politically conservative, you know, faculty and administrators to be sure, and sadly, there I experienced instances of anti-Semitism that proved so severe and threatening that I actually resigned my tenure uh, and and left. The, the school to come up uh, to San Francisco State, where I am now, which is, you know, famously a very left-wing progressive uh, institution. And three years ago, um, we, we had uh, faced campus anti-Semitism uh, in, in yet another profound way. So I thought, you know, what, what how is it that anti-Semitism comes on a university campus when one would think university campuses are the smartest places to be? Um, what is it about anti-Semitism from both the right and the left that happen you know, independently? And wh- why is it that Jews who exist on American university campuses in widely disproportionate numbers uh, are the ones who are at the center of... Of this kind of discrimination from both sides. And, and for me, the answers say a lot about the university and a lot about anti-Semitism and a lot about the liminal place of Jews in American society. So I decided that what I really want to do is communicate some of these larger questions through the drama of my own personal, you know, professional um, challenges around dealing with, with this anti-Semitism on these two college campuses.
1: Well, that sounds like um, a really great project, Um, and we definitely hope to have you back on New Books in Jewish Studies if uh, there's an eventual book that results. Um, But uh, for the time being, thanks very much for uh, being with us today on the program. Um, So we talked to uh, Professor Mark Dollinger, Uh, who holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University uh, about his new book, Black Power, Jewish Politics, Reinventing the Alliance in the 1960s, published by Brandeis University Press in 2018. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it, and thank you for your work.